If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 20. We've been uh, kind of just working through thematically some uh, topics in Revelation. And, um, and we're getting to the end here. And so these are glorious passages, wonderful passages. And the songs really reflected that this morning. Um, I was reminded this week just uh, that it's just hard when you're here and you're preaching. You forget that there's a camera there and that people are watching online. And uh, last week as we got home, my, my wife said my sister-in-law texted her and said something about nice dress or pretty dress or something like that. And my wife was like, what? What's going on? Uh, my brother and, and his wife have been watching from home. And so, Steph, if you're watching today, happy birthday to you. Uh, hope, hope to get one back on you. And so, since they, they did it twice in a row. My brother said something about my sermon too. And I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? So, I'll tell a story about my sister-in-law. When she married my brother, he changed her last name, she changed her middle name as well. This is true. She changed her middle name to Ridiculous. And, and she did it specifically so when people would say, Stephanie, you're ridiculous. She could say, it's my middle name. I've never known anybody so committed to a punchline than that. That's awesome. We're in Revelation chapter 20, and let me just kind of just, just kind of peel back for a second and just kind of look at the big picture of the Bible. And we, we've talked about this before, but in the first two chapters of Genesis, everything is the way it's supposed to be. God creates everything, and he places Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and before the serpent shows up, before sin enters in, everything in the garden is the way it's supposed to be. God created it, it's good, and it's very good. In chapter 3, we're introduced to this other character, uh, a serpent, who deceives Adam and Eve, and they choose to decide, or choose to define good and evil on their own. They, they step out of God's protection they're cast out of the garden, and from chapter 3 in the Bible, all the way to the last two chapters, which we'll get to next week, we live in this upside-down world. Things were not the way that God intentionally created them to be because we chose to step out of God's protection and to find good and evil on our own. And because of that, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourself is broken. Our relationship to the world in which we live, the planet, is actually broken. And our relationship with one another is broken. And if you read the story of the Bible, you see it over and over and over again. And then we get to the last two chapters where you'll say, okay, heaven. And you see everything back the way it should be. In Revelation chapter 20, it's kind of the transition chapter into this glorious restoration that we're going to look at in detail next week. And so we are talking about looking at the world in a different way. And last week we looked at this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked a little bit about how there's this imagery in the Bible of the church, you and I being the bride of Christ. And for some reason, as I was studying this week, I thought of that old tradition. Um, and, I, and it's just one of those things that came to my mind. Okay, uh, brides, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And I'm like, where did that tradition come from? And so I researched it from, from it's English, 
Sorry, Frank, yeah. Um, no, it comes from Old England and the Victorian period and from a poem, and the poem uh, pretty much the same, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, a sixpence in your shoe. And um, yeah, that's, that's from the poem, uh, again, Victorian era. And, and the idea was you had all these good luck charms to ward off curses, specifically the curse of an evil eye somebody might give you during your wedding. Like, who invites that person to the wedding, right? And, you know, I, as I thought about it, look, there's this, this broken world in chapter 3, and there's this transition that's happening in Revelation chapter 20, and it, the curse is going to be lifted. And so, just for the outline today, something old, something new, something borrowed, we'll leave out blue and sixpence, I couldn't fit that in. Okay? So something old. Um, let's look at Revelation chapter 20. Let me read it. And let me just say this. Um, there's many different systems in looking at the Bible. And uh, we are, uh, as a church, historically pre-mill church, pre-millennial church. And it's really funny. I, I teach, it's not funny, it's sad. I, I teach Bible study methods at Corbin Youth University. It's my favorite class to teach when I, when I get to teach that. And I tell my students, it's like, you don't take a, a you know, a, a, a small passage and, and have it interpret the rest of this. You, you take bigger passages to interpret the difficult. Revelation, it's the only time a millennium is mentioned in the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 20. And yet, we have three systems of looking at the entire Bible. Pre-mill, all-mill, and post-mill. It's like, it's one chapter. And so I'm not going to argue for our position this morning. So, sorry. I just want to look at what this is teaching us. Because look, if I convince you on pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, whatever, great. That is not going to help you butter your toast on Monday morning. Okay? I, I want to give you something that is going to help you live this week. And so let's look at this chapter and let's, let's see what it's teaching us. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. And just in case we're confused about who the dragon is, John spells it out for us. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and after that, he must be released for a little while. And, that, and that's why we're all confused about the millennium. Because Satan is bound, and we're living in this heaven-like state, and then he's let loose. And you go, how do you explain that? You'll have to study it yourself. Then, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the words of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its images and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Remember we just talked about there is this, this time to come, but this idea of worshipping the beast and taking his mark is much more 
broad in its approach, too, of those who are just sold out on the world's systems and worshiping the world that we live in instead of the God who created it. And they came to life. They came to life. Kind of major there. It's kind of, all right. We'll see if you wake up later. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, And the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from the presence, uh, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. I forgot to take my mask off. And I'm starting to burn up. Okay. Sorry. Even preaching during this season is a challenge. Okay. We're in a chapter here that is much debated, and, uh, but there's some simple principles that we can draw from this in, in what God is doing in this restoration. It's a glorious restoration. So something old. You know, there's something missing in our world. Our world is broken. And if I had a whiteboard up here and I said, what's wrong with the world that we live in? I mean, we could, we could fill that whiteboard, right, with, with issues. Some of, the, some of the classic answers, you know, um, what do you want to see in the world? I don't know, world peace. Uh, peace would be wonderful, right? We've been watching the headlines this week. Peace would be right at the top of the list. Justice, yes, we want justice for, for all, and, and we would maybe put that on the list. But I, I want to tell you that, that there's an answer that doesn't usually come to the forefront that is actually the overarching principle of what is missing in this world. And so I want you to think for a minute, we won't have a pop quiz, don't worry, but I want you to think for a minute what you would, how you would feel. What what is it that's really missing? 
What, what is it that we need? And I, I think what the Scripture teaches us is that what's missing, what, what needs to fill the entire earth is the glory of the Lord. It's the glory of the Lord. You go, ah, Dave, that wasn't on my list. Let me, let me just kind of make an argument for it a little bit. It's, it's been a storyline in the Bible that is just underneath the surface. Um, here's a few verses uh, up on the board here today from Numbers. Okay, so we're going back to the Pentateuch. In Numbers, as Israel messes up, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled. Notice that, shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. What's he saying? There's going to be a time when the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. From Habakkuk, there's a book probably you haven't read in a while. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The waters cover the sea pretty good. They got it pretty well covered. And so what is saying here is that there's going to be a day when the knowledge of God's glory is just going to cover the entire earth. Man, that's... We, we can't imagine it. You know why? Because we're not experiencing it. Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. All the things the psalmist could ask God for. He chooses that. Here's another one. A little bit different than glory, but I would argue the same idea from Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is the glory? The glory of the Lord is filling the earth, all of it. What is it? That is his presence everywhere. And so the psalmist here says, man, you make known, here's where joy comes from. The presence of God. Again, if I asked you, where does joy come from? I look out at this group, and most of you would say, from my grandkids. Okay? From my kids, whatever. No, the joy comes from the presence of God, according to Scripture. And so, look, from Genesis chapter 3, all the way until we get to Revelation chapter 20, we are living in a world that's missing this. And we're looking forward to it. And so, here's, the, here's, here's the, the old is without the glory of the Lord. The, the new is going to be with the glory of the Lord. So here's what happens. Something new. A glorious, glorious restoration. Um, the first thing is our adversary is bound. I know that that's not what my notes say. You will miss my spelling mistakes when I'm gone, okay? Um, the adversary is bound. And what's really interesting to me here is that they, in Revelation, it's been revealing the process. In, in Revelation chapter 12, and we looked at this, this imagery figure of the dragon chasing the woman who gave birth, right? And, and then the, the son, Jesus, is instantly, the kind of skips his whole life, death and resurrection, and he's at the right hand of God, and then the dragon is chasing uh, uh, the, the, um, the church. 
And then in the next verse, it says that he was cast out of heaven. And so the process is Satan's position is defeated at the cross. That is, he had a, he had a position somewhere at one point in time that's defeated at the cross. And then in the last chapter, we saw this army that came up against God. Remember, we, we had this whole battle scene, and then we never get the battle. It's just kind of over. And what we see is that Satan's people, his army, is defeated. Now, something interesting happens in, chapter, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 20. And when he is bound, and when he is put in this pit, it says, it describes him, verse 2, and they threw him in the pit, verse 3, and shut it and sealed it over him. Notice, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. In another verse it says, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. Now, most of us, hopefully all of us, did not wake up this morning with a lion encounter plan. We did not think to ourselves, how am I going to get to church without being devoured by a lion? We, we don't live in that worry here in Hillsboro. Now, I used to pastor up in the mountains of Idaho, and we had a small little Christian school attached to our church. And my kids went there, and, uh, you know, just like any kid, you'd have lunch, you know, and then they would go out for recess, and they would go out the side. And, and one day, all the kids were running in from recess. The teachers called them in from recess. And the reason why was they saw a bear. Now, in all my years of going to school, never had somebody said, there's a bear on the playground. I did not experience that. Um, but when you have kids that have been eating little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, they're just like little snacks out there on the playground. You bring those peanut butter smelling kids in, right? And so we, we don't usually live with that type of idea, but what we don't understand, you and I live every day under the deception, the temptation, the accusations of the evil one. And it's just become a part of life for us. And when we get to this Revelation chapter 20, it says you're not going to encounter that anymore. And I would like to describe to you what that would be like. But how can I? When we talk about this upside-down world that we live in, sometimes I've described it to students, it's like if you grew up in a house that was upside-down. And what I mean by that is like, you know, where you walk in, think about walking into your bedroom, there's a header above the door. The header was upside, you had to step over the header to get into your room. It's really a bad design. But you know what? If you lived in it your entire, like that's all you knew, you'd never been to a house that was right-side up, it just becomes kind of, well, that's what you do. You step over this. We, we become these creatures. And we, this, is, this is what it's always... And at one point, that, that devil, Satan, the lie, it, it's, it's gone. And you and I will live 
in a world without that. That is part of this glorious restoration that we're going to experience. It's interesting, he spells out the elements of how this is going to happen. There's a key, there's a pit, and there's a chain. I love it. I can picture that. Now the key, I think, goes back to Jesus in chapter 1. It's, it's, uh, Jesus holds the key. And so the angel here could be Jesus or an angel. I don't think it matters. All I know is that Satan ends up in a pit, and I love it. And he spells out the actions. He seized him. He bound. He was thrown. It was shut. It was sealed. Just in case, just so we're not having any, any mistakes. It's taken care of. Our adversary is bound. That's the first result of this glorious restoration. The second is, and most of us are missing this in this passage, but our dominion is restored. And, and let, me, let me just kind of show that to you. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And the souls of those who had been beheaded, the testimony of Jesus for the word, and those who had not worshipped the beast. It's, it's an exhaustive list. It's all believers of all times. At least what it's saying is that all those who have followed Jesus are here, and they're put in this position of authority. And you go, where did this come from? Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's just completing the story. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden as God's image bearers. The language is clear from a Hebrew perspective. This is prince and princess, princesses in the garden. They're, they're there as co-rulers. Now don't, see the problem is, is in our culture we go, oh, ruling, yes. Go get my laundry. Go cook my meals. It's ruling here is just fulfilling the will of the king. It's just being a representative of the king. Being an image bearer of the king. And here we are, restored, because you and I have been kicked out of that position. Because we rebelled against the king of kings. And so that dominion is being restored. What's interesting to me is that this angel, whoever it is, restores man's position, ruling here, carrying out God's will. Second, the angel does what Adam failed to do. Now, what I mean by that is Adam was put into the garden. Adam and Eve were put into the garden. And in Genesis chapter 2, it says that they are to work and keep the garden. Now, you and I think of a garden, and we go, I get it, work and keep, keep, pull the weeds. Oh, wait, there was no weeds. Work and keep the garden, okay? I think I know what that means. But from a Hebrew perspective, it means way more than that. Because when the Levitical priests were given their position, they were told to work and keep the temple. Same exact Hebrew words. And then in the New Testament comes along and says, you are to be the priesthood. And then in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 6, it says, and they will be priests of God. 
And it's carrying the storyline all the way through. And so the angel does what Adam failed to do, and that is keep the garden. And then third, the angel does what Israel failed to do, which is cast out God's enemies. They were to come in the promised land and say, clear the land. And just so we're not mistaken, the angel comes, and he comes with a key, and he comes with a chain, right? And a pit. And he seized him, and he bound him, and he threw him, he sealed it all up. The angel did exactly what Israel failed to do. And so I say this because, listen, we, we have some sort of disconnection with the story of the Bible in heaven. And part of it is because of cartoons that we grew up with, right? I mean, the fat angel babies with the harp and the diaper, Okay, I've said it before, doesn't make heaven appealing. Okay? Those of us who don't like choirs, the idea of the eternal choir sounds a bit painful. Okay? Never heard a song run on the eternal golf course, but you know, whatever. Here's, here's the point. We were created to be servants of the king and to experience his glorious presence. And Satan is deceiving us. It's breaking the relationship we have with God, with ourselves, with the world, with those around us. And Satan is bound, and this thing is being restored, and it's this beautiful picture of, of God not destroying everything and starting all over, but putting everything back the way it was meant to be. He's putting it back together. Our life is restored. Here's, here's this first resurrection. And I told you, I'm not going to give you a map. I'm not going to give you a map of end times. I, I, I'm not going to do that. But, but here's the picture that there is a resurrection to come of the dead. And this is not new information, okay? This shouldn't go, what, a resurrection? What's happening here? We see this all through Scripture. Let's just remind ourselves this morning. And let me, let me read it again here in verses 5 and 6. Let me read you some other verses. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were. This is the first resurrection. These are the people that, that didn't worship the beast. And he says in verse 6, blessed, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So what are we talking about? Here's some verses. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Oh, amen. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be myself, that where I am you may also be. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Hebrews chapter 2, So therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook 
of the same thing, speaking of Jesus, that through death, He might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What is being restored is life. Eternal life the way that God intended it to be. Fourth, our identity and purpose is being restored. We're talking about a kingdom here. And a kingdom is includes, and we're talking about God's kingdom, but all kingdoms would include a king and a place that's being ruled, people, right? So it's a king, it's a place, it's a people, and it's a rule. And, and, and when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is both now, it's happening, but it's not yet fully re- recognized. And I say that because the Bible talks about the kingdom of God Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, it has come, and yet here we are talking about this kingdom. And so there's a truth in which the kingdom of God is now, but it's not, it's not quite yet. And the Bible calls us to be the priesthood of believers, but here we see it being lived out, and so we are priests and will be priests to work and keep the kingdom of God. And we'll be with him. That song that we sang this morning is made famous just by a question none of us really thought about and Christian artists kind of put it to words and to music. What will I be like when I come face to face with Jesus? What a, what a great question. What will I experience? John fell on his face. Worship God. He just, he just, he fell like dead. He just, whoosh. I, and I grew up in Baptist church, so dancing is not an option for me. What will he experience? Here's one thing you will experience. From that moment, when you first see Jesus, from that moment, forever and ever and ever and ever, you will be in the presence of God. If you think that heaven is just free from this world, if you think that heaven is just some sort of long-term vacation, if you are picturing heaven without Jesus, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you are picturing heaven without Jesus, you are picturing the wrong place. Because heaven is all about the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. It's restoring what the garden was like. What would it be like to walk with God in the cool of the evening. I don't know, but we're going to find out. That's the answer. I don't know, but we're going to find out. And finally, we're going to see justice restored. Look, there's a reason why there are thrones and judgment happening 
Satan is defeated. Okay? Verse 7, he, somehow at the end of this millennium, this, this great state that we're living, he musters an army. Okay? Don't know how that happens. Doesn't matter where I put it on a map. He musters an army, and he stands up for battle, and just God says, no battle. It's over. We're done. And then there's the great white throne. And everybody will stand before God and give an account. And if your name is not found in the book of life, you'll be separated from the King of Kings for all eternity. Something old, the world that we used to live in. Something new, the world that is being restored. Something borrowed. Folks, we are all living on borrowed time. Let me be very clear this morning that Scripture teaches that if your name is not written in the book of life, in this lifetime, before you die, you will be separated from God in the lake of fire for all eternity. And people have all sorts of questions. Is the lake of fire, is that literal? Is it literal fire? Is it figurative fire? I have just all this year, and I have college students, they ask all these questions. I like Timothy Keller's answer. He said, and I, I'm misquoting a little bit, but he said, he said, I don't think it's literal fire. I just think it's worse than that. Worse? Yeah, it's supposed to be picturing something really bad. You, you want literal fire? Fine. It's just, it's just bad. But you won't experience the presence of God. You won't walk with God in the cool of the evening. And so today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're walking and living and breathing on borrowed time. And my call to you is to recognize who he is. When we rebelled against God and said, we're going to define good and evil on our own, it said death entered this world, pain entered this world, suffering entered this world. I had a question this week, and I hadn't got it before, and, and uh, I love wrestling with this stuff, and I didn't give a great answer. I've got to follow back. But the, the question is, what do you say to people that say God is manipulating you? And I said, you're going to have to define that for me. I, and nobody's ever said that to me. And they said, well, people say, you know, God lets you go through rough things, so bad things, so that you would come to him, that you would submit yourself to him. And so, you know, if we did that as parents, if we purposely tortured our kids so that they would learn a lesson, we would, we would say that's bad. And so it's, we talked about this before. It's the whole he's got a bad father thing. And remember, he's also God and creator. But here's the point. As I, as I answered that, I said, look, we, we just have such a self-centered point of view. The reason that we encounter death, the reason that we encounter poverty, the reason that we encounter pain, broken relationships, suffering, oppression, is because of sin. And sin came into the world because we rebelled against God. 
Now, granted, we don't all experience that sin on equal levels because we're sinful. The other morning, I woke up and made the mistake of scrolling through Facebook before I scrolled through my Bible. Don't do that. And there was just one of these people just talking to me, just could not be talking about themselves anymore. Me, 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 me. And I just started, I was so irritated with this. And my wife said, I'm doing my devotion. I said, The Bible says, in the end times, people will become lovers of self. Night, if that does not describe the world that we live in, I don't know what does. Look, we need to recognize who Jesus is. He's the creator. All things were created through him. We rebelled against the creators. Oh, you don't get to rule me. And God said, I love you so much. Jesus is going to become and live and die for you. Man, he is chasing after you. What a glory. Recognize who he is. Recognize what he's done for you. I mean, it's so corny, but how much does Jesus love you? This much. Like he literally spread out his arms and took the nails for you. I, I don't know. I, I struggle. So I was like, man, is Jesus loving me today? Come on. He died for you. He took your place. Recognize who he is. Recognize what he's done. And then recognize what he has to offer. How much he has to offer. Look, if this, if chapter 20, 21 and 22 doesn't light your fire for what's to come, I, I can't help you. This, this sounds awesome to me. You're working for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Your dad, you're part of the inheritance, you're part of the team. This is a beautiful restoration here. So what's the application in action? We've been talking a lot about Lord's Prayer here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray and long for the glory of God every day. As Christians, we should pray for, long for, and seek the glory of God every single day. I just tell you, if we lived like that, as followers of Jesus, we just look God, I want to live for your glory today. I want to seek your glory. I want to see your glory. You know what happens? Is you and I become smaller and smaller and smaller. And our kingdom becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And God is revealed for who he is. Bigger and bigger and bigger. May we as a church and individuals pray daily and seek daily the glory of God. And may we live with the end in mind. I don't know what you're going through today. I, you know, I, I know that we're struggling. I know that we're in transition. I know Janine and I are in transition. And, and man, we just we live each day with what is next? What is this? What is, can we just, just stop for a moment and just, as we did in worship this morning, just picture with the end. Just picture where we're going. God is so good. And he gives so much. So live with the end in mind. And just one final warning. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're living on borrowed time, and this life is short. It's short. And we know. We've seen it in our congregation. Things change. We've seen it in our world. In a moment, one Sunday, how are things going? Great, we're doing great, enjoying retirement next Sunday. It, it does. It happens like that. This time is short. Live with the end in mind. Seek to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for an opportunity to dig into your word and to worship. Uh, we love you, and uh, we thank you for your love for us. Uh, we pray that our lives would be honoring to you, that we would live with the end in mind. And even now, as we, as we close in worship, God, I pray that if there are some here that are being drawn to bow their knees to Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, to repent of their sin, and trust in you and you alone, God, that you would just give them the courage to follow after you. God, I pray for those that we've been walking with you, we've known you for a long time, that we'd be encouraged this morning, that you love us and you have something great planned for us, and may we live with that in mind. May we worship you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.